Welcome to Lost in the Supermarket. I'm Phil Lempert, your host. Now, I've got to tell you something. Over the past probably two or three years, um, I have bought um, a device, or I, I, I really want to say devices, that I can't live without. It is Alexa, and probably Alexa is going to be triggered because it's sitting right over there and it's going to say something. But when I look at what the power is in these devices, whether it's for music, whether it's for information, my calendar, timers, uh, it, it's extraordinary. I wake up every morning jealous that I didn't think of it. Well, it's all about artificial intelligence. And with me today is Jason Hivery, the CEO and co-founder of Hivery, an AI company. And I want to know more about artificial intelligence. So that's where we're going to start, Jason. So tell me exactly what I don't know about artificial intelligence. And then we're going to move to the food business. And then we're going to hear about what the food business could do by getting more involved. And then I want to hear specifically about Hivery, what you're doing. I know you've got some extraordinary clients, including folks like Walmart, um, major CPG companies, and how you're helping them. But first, give us the 101 about artificial intelligence. Well, good afternoon, Phil. It's great to be here, and look, thanks for having thanks for having me and and, and sharing you know Hybrid's story and, and our knowledge about the, the sector. So, jumping into artificial intelligence, it's 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 a huge topic, right? Um, so broad ranging, and I think one of the things I would say, um, you know, just to kind of kind of bring it to life, is I think that the the term artificial intelligence or or AI, as it's affectionately known. Um, it draws a lot of confusion when people start to, to talk about it. And I think it's because it's such such a broad topic. Um, you know, if you think about it, and there's sort of three things that I want to kind of call out when we think about artificial intelligence. Um, one, I think historically, we've always associated the term AI with movies. Um, and that was certainly my case when I entered into this sector, you know, in the last five or six, seven years. You throw the term AI around and you immediately start thinking about, you know, Star Wars, Terminator 2, um, 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, e even looking back in, you know, the, the Jetsons. And, and so I think because of these sort of fictional kind of connotations with the term AI and these robotic characters, um, it all sounds a little bit fictional to a lot of us, a little bit out there, right? And as we move forward into, you know, now in the year, getting towards the you know, end of the year 2020, AI is very, very much um, part of our lives. And so as we think about that, firstly, that association with movies and, and the future and robotics, I think the other thing we need to all acknowledge is that artificial intelligence, intelligence um, is a very broad topic. You know, it ranges from things like the calculator in your phone uh, to self-driving cars to something in the future that might actually kind of surpass human intelligence and have a major um, impact on the way the world kind of fundamentally operates. Um, and so artificial intelligence refers to, to sort of all of those things. And I think for that reason, uh, such a broad topic can, can kind of conjure a little bit of confusion uh, out there. Um, I think thirdly, um, we use AI all the time um, in our daily lives and, and we don't even realize it's artificial intelligence. You know, you think about, you, you mentioned Alexa, um, I, I was actually driving into the office this morning um, and, I, and I just noticed, uh, and I hadn't noticed this for a while, that there's no ticket machine when I go into the car park anymore. There's a camera that recognises my number plate. 
It knows, you know, how long I've been there and it charges me on the way out. That's, that's a form of artificial intelligence in image recognition technology. Um, you think about, you know, one of the things that I often, you know, most simple cases is, you know, the GPS systems that we're all used to using when we get in our car. They used to be the TomTom devices. They're on our phones. Um, they're, they're in our cars. And you think about it, you give that a command. You say, hey, I'm here and I want to get there. Give me the best, the, the best way to get there. And you've got some options along the way. You might want to stop somewhere along the way to, to visit a grandparent. You might want to avoid toll roads. You might want to take the scenic route. And you, you've just given it an objective about what you want to, what you want to do, and it gives you the best outcome. That's another form of AI. You know, the thing is that's really interesting about it, that artificial intelligence has been around us for a long, long time. I think the first time... Um, you know, John McCarthy, who actually coined the term artificial intelligence back in 1950, 1956. So think about that. That's getting on sort of 70 years ago. Um, he sort of, he sort of, he's quite famous for saying uh, one specific quote, uh, that as soon as AI works, um, no one's going to call it AI anymore because that's how pervasive it's going to be. Um, and so, you know, it all sounds like this mythical future prediction, but today it's much more of a reality. And so I think there's, just to kind of round out this, this point about AI, there's really three types of artificial intelligence that we should think about. And one um, is artificial narrow intelligence. It's where a, a machine, and AI just, just to kind of put that into context, is, is a machine that's able to think in a way that's similar, do, do complete tasks or think in a way that's similar to what a human does. And so when we think about narrow intelligence, that's kind of where we are today. Um, for, for, for quite a few decades, um, a, a computer has been able to beat uh, the world's best chess champion. And so you give it the objective of, hey, this is the rules of the game, and our objective is to beat the opponent, and it gets very, very, very good at that specific task. Um, there's a great video when you look at some of the old computer games and you just give it an objective and you watch the, the AI learn that rule. And then you start to think about artificial and general intelligence, which is where, you know, um, they start where the information that the machines are able to process start to become more expansive, start to behave more like a human brain. And then there's this super intelligence concept where kind of some point predicted in the future, um, and there's a lot of argument amongst the industry about if that will occur or even when and what that will look like, um, is when that there is a super intelligence. But I think today, all of the examples that we talk about, the field that Hybri operates in, is very much in that narrow intelligence It's able to you know, compute large amounts of data, run far more scenarios that we as humans are able to do and do things in very unique ways. So what I'm hearing loud and clear is that we probably need to change the term AI or artificial intelligence into subsets. So if, if I say, um, you know, I want to buy food, that's a huge category. Um, here in the yeah. States, that comprises 40... 45,000 different products that are located in a supermarket. Um, if I say, you know, I want to buy meat, uh, that narrows it down uh, to probably about, you know, 100 different kinds of meats, whether it's chicken, whether it's uh, turkey, whether it's beef, and, and so on. So what I'm hearing is a lot of the confusion is exactly what you said, is the terminology that that's being used by a lot of people and it's getting 
lumped together in a way that that is confusing to consumers. So, you know, how do we properly communicate to the average consumer um, who who might have a device on their desk or, or in their homes that is that narrow casting device uh, that turns the lights off and on or, you know, plays music or whatever, you know, I guess my, my question is, is not only how, but should we be narrowing it down for them to further their understanding and increase their use? Or are they better off, you know, just not knowing and just making it part of their lives? Uh, look, that's a really good question, Phil, and I'm not sure I have the perfect answer. I, I, I don't think not knowing is necessarily the answer. Uh, I think it comes back to a little bit that quote from John McCarthy, one of the founders, is, is once it becomes so evasive, you don't really know, you know, that AI is there. Like all the examples that I talked about, I mean, a lot of this and a lot of what we do is just very, very advanced mathematical computation that's able to run a whole lot of, you know, um, different computations and come up with the best answer in a very, very quick manner, which is something that we haven't been able to do historically. And so, you know, do, do we necessarily need to acknowledge, you know, back to that example of driving into the car park or, you know, you know, you've now been able to control the temperature in your home by a device that can monitor the external and internal conditions and adjust things accordingly. All of those sorts of things that have a form of artificial intelligence in it, um, you know, I think the terminology, you know, you're right. I think we could start being a bit more focused. I think the other thing is that I think naturally, my view on this, I think naturally as in more and more industries and more and more consumers just get used to this. I mean, in, in we talk internally here at Hybrid and it's a very common theme that artificial intelligence essentially like data, it, it becomes like a general purpose technology. It becomes like electricity. Or like the internet, it's something that we tap in and we use and we utilize through so many different services. And you know, so many things, you know, some of the examples we've talked about just now are very obvious ones. You know, when we start talking about the retail sector and some of the work that Hybrid does, um, you know, it gets very, very niche and very specific to solving certain problems. But I think we're all we're all interacting with this more and more in our daily lives, whether it be the devices we interact with, how we manage our homes and our lives, or the way things are done at work. And I think um, just kind of rolling it up um, another level as well, I think one thing I'd like to talk about is that, you know, one of the things that comes across with this very general and broad topic of AI um, is a lot of the fear around, you know, job replacement um, and how, um, you know, machines are going to replace us uh, doing all sorts of things. Now, you know, one of the things that, one of the areas that we're very focused on at Hybrid is what we call where um, artificial intelligence and computer technology is augmenting and sort of elevating human decision-making, where it's actually the combination of the human skill set and the way the mind works along with the technology and the, and, and the ability to process huge amounts of data to come up with a far better outcome. And so one of the things, you know, I, I, I remember speaking publicly not that long ago and I was you know, referenced, I was doing a talk a little bit on a similar topic to this, and I talked about the movie Terminator 2. And if you think about that movie, which was a very fun movie of mine growing up, um, you had you had Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, that was all about logic. You know, he was the machine focused on a very specific outcome. But then you had John Connor, who was, you know, brought empathy, intuition, understanding to the situation. It was actually how those two people worked together, all those two, two things worked together to achieve an outcome that 
that, that collectively they achieved a far better outcome. And we see that today in all sorts of industries. And I want to bring that to life in, in actually the medical industry. There was a study done a couple of years ago that looked at um, um, uh, mammogram tests and being able to detect uh, breast cancer in women about a year about a year out from when they were formally diagnosed. And what they did is they ran, they, they got a, uh, several thousand um, scans and they gave it to a like, a like a leading practitioner and they tested the error rate just by looking at the, at the, the standard ways of doing things that day. I think the practitioner, and, and I might be slightly out, had an error rate of like 0.085. So quite a small error rate, but an error rate nonetheless. Then they gave exactly the same scans to um, an AI, so a mathematical model, a computer, and said, okay, you, you look at these tests and see what the error rate is. Now, the error rate improved slightly. It dropped from 0.85 to like 0.79. But then what they did is they then said, hey, how about we get the pathologist to work with the AI system to, to um, see what the outcome was? And the error rate dropped 95% down to 0.005%. And the point was that the, that the computer working with the human intuition and the human mind working in combination with the the technology could actually get a far superior result. And that's exactly what we see in the world work that we do. It sort of, it elevates the, the intuition, the, the external knowledge, the, I guess the, the broader intelligence that we talked about thinking about those definitions before to work with that narrow intelligence to come up with an optimal outcome and kind of focus more on the strategic, intuit, intuitive, innovative solutions that perhaps the data doesn't see. So I know we, we went down a different topic there, but I think, um, back to your original question about how we should, the terminology is definitely confusing. Um, I think maybe as it becomes more pervasive, we'll start being able to pick the, the, the specific segments that underpin the broader topic and understand how they're utilised in our lives and, and maybe be a bit more specific in the way we talk about AI. So let's, let's take on humans for, for a moment and not from a job standpoint. But one of the things that I hear a lot, uh, both in business and, and friends, um, is, you know, they're concerned about privacy. As we see more and more of these devices uh, being put into practice, they're fearful of, of their own privacy, that, you know, th that they've got, you know, this device in their home that they could be listened to. What do you say to those folks? Look, I think it's a really genuine um, concern and, and they have every right to. I mean, I think it, the, the power of the technology um, is significant and even us technologists need to not just focus on technology for technology's sake, but understand, you know, the rights of the individual um, and the right to privacy. I think, you know, the reality is, and there's quite an interesting, you know, when you look at some of the studies in this space, um, there's quite a difference in the attitudes towards privacy and, and giving up some of your data in, in generations. I think that, that the generations that are coming through now are just, you know, they're the, they're the connected generation. They're used to, they grew up with Facebook and they grew up with Instagram and they grew up with the internet. And, you know, I think everywhere you, know, you go now, there are so many services that become available to us that make things simple. And so without realising we're actually giving up personal data. Um, you know, I think about the airport example, not that many of us are spending a huge amount of air time at airports right now, but, you know, you're at the airport, uh, I travel a lot internationally, I'm on an international phone, I connect to the local Wi-Fi, you, you know, you give them your email address and then you give them a few things and, 
all of a sudden you, that, that information is stored in a data and they know where you are and then probably at the next airport you do the same. So all of this information starts to connect. They know where you're going. They know where you are. They know what you're searching. You know, they, they, they can connect it to other databases. We all know now that, you know, you think about um, we all have these pretty um, uncanny experiences with how targeted advertising and information can be. I was looking at a new couch uh, online. Um, you know, I was searching couches and sofas for my home. Literally the next that night, pulled up my phone, pulled up my Instagram. I'm getting served all of these gorgeous sofas in advertising. Um, that's a reality because we are all giving up our personal data quite regularly and, and we don't know it. Um, I think, you know, there needs to be um, some broader education around how a lot of the solutions we use as consumers, um, you know, and, and certainly at Hybrid, we're most, more focused on the kind of B2B kind of solutions here. But certainly, um, it's certainly a good point, Bill, and I, and I would say we should all be very conscious of it. We should probably try to educate ourselves about how much data we're actually giving up and how much is available out there uh, for businesses to see, whether it's our credit history, uh, whether it's, you know, our search history, um, you know, whether it's our location, whether it's our loyalty data. You know, people need to realise if they sign up to a loyalty program at a, at, a, at a retailer that you're actually giving, you know, whilst that might give you benefits and discounts and promotions and special deals, you're also trading something for that and that's your information. And I'm not sure broadly the community knows that and I think they, that they really need to understand, start to understand that a little more and understand the implications of it. And I think there probably needs to be some broader governance and broader rules. One thing I will say, um, playing in the data space, um, there is a lot of, um, you know, there's a significant amount of rules and regulation and compliance around when businesses do start to have access to certain pieces of information. One thing personally that struck me in all of this is I've, I think I've received personally nothing relating to anything we do at work, probably five data breach emails in the past six months, you know, from certain services that I've been, you know, one of, one of the hotel services that I've got sent me an email saying, hey, we've had a data breach. Uh, I think one of the, you know, the, the booking systems where you book restaurants, I got an email about, you know, my data being breached. And and my fear was when I saw that, well, hey, this is just the normal. So we started off, you know, giving away our data without thinking about it. And now we just, and now, and now you know, the systems and, and processes that those businesses have to protect our data probably more easily penetratable than we realize and then we get these you know they need to report when there's a breach and all of a sudden that starts to happen and we, i think our i think our defense our sort of acceptance of all of this is it's just our guard's not really up and, and and i know it was just a personal reflection i didn't i didn't think too much of it i didn't do anything about it i didn't complain i just went oh okay well that was done i guess i've got nothing to hide so that's not a big deal but that's that's a pretty that's a pretty complacent view to take to your personal data, I think. And, you know, I had something similar happen probably about six, seven months ago. Well, pre-pandemic, um, I get a call one day from American Airlines and um, I'm a frequent flyer there. And they said, Marriott has had a data breach and yeah. we partner with Marriott. So as a result of that, all of your American Airlines information um, has now been breached and we've got to change your frequent 
flyer number uh, to, to avoid problems, which is the first time I really thought about um, how all these companies are exchanging information, working in partnership. And, um, and, and to your point, what I found interesting, though, is something that your folks sent over to me that said that IBM said that 90% of all the data that's out there has been collected just over the past few years. And Forrester then said, but only 12% of it is being used. Talk to me about that. We're, we're, we're collecting this. I remember when frequent shopper card programs first started hitting supermarkets here. And everybody thought it was the greatest thing ever. You're going to have all this information. And I'm talking probably 30, 35 years ago. And I was talking to um, the CEO of, of a supermarket. And I said, you know, tell me about this program and whatever else. And he said, you know, follow me. We're in their corporate headquarters. We go into a room, and in that room are boxes and boxes of computer printouts. They had no idea what to do with all this data that, that they're collecting. Now we've changed that a bit, uh, but, but the point of it is that we still have all this data that's not being used. So let's talk about, uh, and, and let's move it into the supermarket, what should supermarkets, uh, what should C CPG companies be using the, the wrong term AI uh, to, to discover about you and I and, and their businesses? Well, look, I'm so, look, Phil, one thing I'd like to say, I'm really glad you brought this point up because those, those two stats, you know, 90% of the world's data was created in the last two years, yet the other side of that equation that organizations on average are using about 12% of that data. Um, they were two of the fundamental stats that actually made myself and my co-founders, Frankie, Matt and Menkes, found our company. We, we just sat there and we looked, you know, you know, Frankie and I were kind of the entrepreneurs, the, the business side of the equation, and the other guys were PhD level researchers, data scientists, and you just, the first time I heard that, and I think I, I think I use that stat almost in every time I speak because for me, it really, it really showcases what's going on right now. Um, we, are, we are sitting at the really at the beginning of a massive data slash digital revolution that will change the fabric of the way we do business and the way we live. And some of the things we've talked about are already are already in play. But just just to stop for a second and think about that. Um, 90% of the world's data was created in the last two years. That means it is just growing exponentially. And we look here at the data and, and coming out this side, it's just, it's just going to grow exponentially. At the same time, technology is advancing super quickly. Our ability, our ability to process such data and, and mine insights from it is becoming more and more powerful but by the day. And so, you know, and then organizations, so they're creating more, but they're not quite sure how to utilize how to utilize it, how to how to think about um, running their businesses more effectively. And so sitting at the center of all that was, was actually how Hybrid started. Uh, we weren't um, necessarily retail specialists, although we had a special partnership with a Coca-Cola company that allowed us to kind of have access to data sets and and, and, and industry problems and subject matter experts. But we really brought with, us, brought with us this innovative mindset that, hey, this is going to change the way we do things and how can we help this industry become more effective uh, and make better decisions? And I think one of the things I'll talk about just quickly um, is in the world of, of sort of data science and AI, there's sort of three kind of areas um, 
of data that I want to talk about. One is descriptive analytics. So if you think about that, pretty much we've always looked at descriptive analytics that tells you what has happened. So, you know, your monthly sales report, um, your, you know, your, your profit and loss statement, it is a, it is a description of what is, what has happened. And a lot of time we use, you know, point of sales data or whatever, whatever data sets we use is, is, is telling us, um, what has occurred. Then the next thing that has been a big focus over you know, the last decade or so is, is then um, uh, predictive analytics. How do you use that descriptive data to start to predict what happens next? And that's where it gets really interesting because you can start doing you know, all sorts of interesting forward-looking forecasts. You can really start to predict certain outcomes with certain degrees of confidence. Um, and then that's where AI starts to get really interesting, and it can, you know, especially with all of these growing data sets and computational power. The accuracy, the detail of those, you know, predictions becomes really, really novel and really, really interesting. We actually focus on the next step, which is called uh, prescriptive analytics, which is where we actually use those um, predictions to prescribe the best action. So you're able to give the computer, you're able to give the software an objective and say, hey, I want to do this. You know, I want to generate more sales. I want to reduce the amount of stock outs, I want to increase the days of supply, I want to maximize the range, I want to, you know, whatever that may be, and then it will give you the best outcome. It will tell you exactly what to do. Um, that's where it starts to get to get really, really interesting. If you start to think about, um, you know, I'm going I'm I'm to reference a, a specific report here. Accenture, I think it was in 2018, um, did a report about, um, you know, the revolution in the workforce that was going to occur as a result of, of, of AI and data. Um, and interestingly, um, the number one industry that they saw that was going to benefit the most was the CPG, consumer goods industry. They looked at it and said, um, um, I've just got a, a note here, that um, investment in AI and human-machine collab collaboration was going to boost revenues in the coming period by 51% for the sector. And the next closest after that was health, 49%, telecommunications, 46%. So I think the message that I would like to say to you know, the audience and to yourself that there is a huge opportunity um, in retail, in, in consumer goods, um, around investing in, in this technology. And we're seeing this more and more and more. Another, um, another study sort of said that, um, you know, by 2022, um, I think this was Juniper Research, I'm, I'm looking at another stat here, um, that um, retailers would spend in 2022 $7.3 billion on AI. I think that's a huge number. And you compare that back to about, you know, $2 million in about 2018 and 2019. And so sitting in the middle of this is a huge, huge opportunity. When I think about those prescriptive analytics things that I talked about, what it really comes down to is how do you elevate your decision making? How do you get more targeted, more specific in how you run your supply chain, how you distribute your products, how you know in our in our case how you stock the shelves, how you how you actually make sure that as a as we work with our you know partners, our our CPG manufacturers or the retailers. How we make sure we're giving the consumers the best possible experience by making sure that every location that they interact with 
has the best assortment of products that actually is tailored to the specific consumers that interact with that location. And so I think, um, you know, we're very focused on that area, but there are just endless opportunities. I would just say, well, I, I can't think, I can hardly think of an area of a retail business, of a CPG business, that cannot benefit from understanding how the power of data and the utilization of advanced analytics can help them streamline their decision making, um, actually skill up their workforce to focus less on the kind of the grunt work of processing data on spreadsheets and actually get information that enables them to make far more strategic, targeted, insightful decisions to really offer a better, better product to the end consumers. So Let's let's get into more specifics and real examples. Um, I'm the CEO of a retail chain. I'm in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I have supply chain issues. I have customers that I have to limit the amount of people who can come in my store at a at a particular point in time. Uh, everybody in my store has to wear masks. Um, everything that that COVID nineteen has affected with the supermarket. Um, you're in my office, uh, safely distanced and with a mask and uh, pitch me, you know, what what can Hivery do for me um, at this time where I'm just all over the place saying, I just want to stay in business. I've got to figure out how to do delivery. I've got to figure out how people order online. I've, I've got to, you know, take all these prescriptions, if you would, uh, that Hivery can come up and I've got to grow my business or I'm going to go out of business. So what's your pitch to me and why should I buy? Uh, to, it's a really good question, Phil. I would say, look, at the end of the day, what, you know, for the retailers and the CPG factors, uh, CPG manufacturers, Ivory has a system that enables you to input all of those real-life um, real life data feeds, real-life world constraints, and, and as you rightly called out, COVID has put so many of those fundamental assumptions in question. It has changed the way we operate. We can, we can put that into a system that reads that data in real time and tells you how each location should be um, optimised for maximum sales and maximum profitability. Now, there are a couple of things I'm going to call out, Phil, just straight off the bat that um, is where the, where the human needs to interact with that technology, thinking about some supply constraints. So I was talking in Australia, spoke to the board of Kimberly Clark um, a couple of months ago, and you would think of a business like that with all of the panic buying that occurred earlier in the year would be absolutely on fire. Um, I think the reality is, yes, sales are great, but the margin on those products is reduced significantly because they're needing to run, you know, facility manufacturing facilities 24 hours a day. They're not able to get their products distributed quickly enough. Um, you've got limitations in store. You've got con consumers shifting, you know, to click and collect and online more and more. I was really interested, actually, when I was listening to your podcast that you did on the Ivory Channel about that still consumers prefer to shop at a brick-and-mortar grocery store, about 78% of them. It's really, really interesting. I think when you look across the world um, as well, there's no single response or single situation to the COVID-19 situation. And here I live in Sydney. Um, we've been very, very fortunate. It's pretty much life as usual here. Uh, we've got very few cases. We've managed to contain things. You know, shops are, are, are open. People are out shopping. But then you look in some places where there are dramatic restrictions. But I say back to you, like we are able to, what, what we are able to do is in a nutshell, is we're able to tailor your offering 
to maximize the opportunity for each specific location. And that's what AI and that's what data and machine learning enables you to do. Historically, um, you know, you look at retailers, you mentioned Walmart, you know, several thousand stores across the US, and they're planning across those locations. They have to roll it up to a level that makes it um, manageable to for the people that work in those sectors to, to plan out the, the assortments, you know, to, to go and execute. What we're able to do, and then, and then the industry has moved into kind of clustering. So, hey, these stores behave similarly or they have similar demographics, and so we tailor the offering. We actually say that um, in the middle of all that, clustering and, and kind of traditional methods, methods of segmentation only get you part of the way. And we understand by looking at that utilization of those vast data sets that you're talking about, that every location is unique. It has its unique fingerprint or it's a snowflake, a unique snowflake. And you can use data to understand the uniqueness of that. And uniqueness of that location is based on the behavior of that location. So let me sort of bring into a little parallel. You know, um, so traditional segmentation methods would say, let, let's compare me to my neighbor. My neighbor is, you know, I think he's about five or, or, or 10 years, less similar age group as me, same sort of background, probably, you know, sim similar financial situation. Uh, we've both got two young kids. Um, and so we live in the same postcode. Same ethnicity, both got children. So you're the um, same, yet, you're, you're brothers. We're brothers, yet, you know, I like tennis and he likes classical music, you know, you know, or he likes football. And so that, you know, and, and, and how do you, and so the, the, the demographic, zip code, socioeconomic segmentation works to a point because you can draw generalization and trends. But if you think about what happens in an online environment, the first time you ever go to an Amazon, the first time you ever go to an online store, you might not have ever put your personal data in. You might not have transacted, so they don't, they don't have your address. You know, they don't have your, your, your credit card details or anything yet. But what they do have is they know what, what products you hover over. They know what you add to your basket. You know, they know how you click between certain things. And then as, as your, so what they know is your behavior. And hey, guess what? Back to that data collection we were talking about, they know that about every single person that's ever interacted in the website. And so all of a sudden they're able to see, hey, people that start hovering on things in the same way, clicking on something, they start to be able to serve up a profile and recommend products to you based on your behavior rather than the information, you know, your demographics and all those sorts of things. Over time, you then might buy something and you they store information, you might join a loyalty program that just adds to the richness of data. So what we look at, we say we can understand the behavior of the consumers in your stores by the by the the sales patterns in your sales data by looking at it across all those you know several thousand stores and then therefore we can understand how each one should be unique um, and we draw all sorts of interesting insights to tailor the offering to make sure that the consumer experience is as closely matched to the product offerings that they want in that store and then also the efficiencies that are able to drive that location what that means is incremental sales, incremental value. You have less out of stocks. You have products sitting on the fringe that um, that result in incremental sales. To put this into context, the last three years we've been working in, probably shouldn't drop names, but we're one of the biggest beverage manufacturers in the world with one of the largest retailers. And we took the entire category, we, we grew the category 
uh, incremental sales by $50 million every year for the last three years by just understanding how each location should be different, but not just understanding, building a system that enabled that to be executed um, in the field. Now, now back to your original question, how does that, so what a lot of where we operate is kind of at that, you know, the, the process for planning categories is kind of an annual cycle right now. You think about that, um, you know, for example, Walmart takes about 40 weeks of the year to plan next year's sort of assortment range. Uh, when we were doing this, in, 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 we've actually got a solution in vending machines as well that responds much more in real time because if the driver's going out every day and if there's an opportunity to optimise and grow sales, you can make changes. We work in Japan and, you know, have to have seasonal hot-cold switchovers and so there's a whole um, mechanism about how you can optimise that in more real time. But there is a strong desire in the industry for that, for that cycle to not be 40 weeks, to get down to something like as close to real time as possible. I mean, I think they would aim for half, would 20 weeks would be great. Our vision is to actually bring that down to live. You've got live data coming from your, from your sales ports. You can understand what you talked about. Hey, we've got some supply, supply chain issues in this sec, in this particular category. Um, we've got less consumers coming in. I think one of the trends that we've seen actually, uh, and I was listening to your podcast again yesterday is we've seen, um, uh, a lot of the, the the retailers pushing more and more going into the next assortments for for lower cost items, and that's because of the, the state of the economy. They want that there's a drive to say, hey, we're we're concerned about purchasing power. We want to provide offerings that are more affordable for the consumers because we, you know, given the nature of the economy after what we've been through over the last four months and more, that's what we're going to be going towards. But um, when, when, where this data leads to, Phil, is a far more dynamic far more reactive nature to the way the retailers and the manufacturers can respond to those market dynamics. If you operate in a, in a, in a system where it takes a huge amount of people and a whole lot of manual process and 40 weeks of the year to, to figure out how to sort your store, imagine you can do that in, in minutes and you can respond in real time with live data feeds and then you have you just need to think about the, you know, the, 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 the labor equation about how you change your stores, but you can be able to look at, look at the map of America, look at where all my stores are located and go, hey, there's a dozen of them that are just really out of whack. You know, the, the, we, 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 we've, got, we've got such, you know, they're, they're not optimized. Our, our assortment is wrong. They're, those particular areas are particularly impacted by, you know, the current market conditions, perhaps by, by COVID or not. Um, we need to focus in on that. We need to make some changes so we get the offering right for our consumer. Right now, that's that's a much harder thing to do. So um, to pitch that CEO, we can help you respond far more dynamically. We can tailor your assortment to the unique, to the to the very specific and unique requirements of the consumers that interact with that location. And we can help by doing so. We can help grow your sales and drive greater efficiency. And that's at the end of the day what we're all about. So, Jason, uh, last question. If you had to look into your crystal ball and uh, pick a timeline, you know, five years from now, um, what, what will the supermarket be looking like that um, has Hivery and artificial intelligence embedded into it from the eyes of the consumer? It's oh, a really good question, Phil. I think at the end of the day, um, the way the consumer interacts with the with the supermarket 
is there's this hidden, you know, I think as a, you know, as I think about myself as a consumer, I get my trolley and I walk down the aisle. I, I still enjoy that um, as much as I'm a, I like to pick what I'm going to eat for dinner tonight. And, um, there's a secret world that hits behind that around what actually, and, and, and it's quite complex, it's quite niche. Um, there's a lot of different solutions and, and, and differing factors that, that actually result in that end offering for the consumer. And, what, you know, and I think the consumer just expects to see um, the products that they want when they walk down the aisle. They go down the cereal aisle, we're working with some cereal, play, uh, some of the cereal manufacturers, they expect their favourite cereal to be there. You know, they walk down the beverage aisle, same thing. I think, you know, there are a lot of trends happening um, in the supermarket sector from, and you've talked a lot about these on this podcast around, you know, uh, around, you know, the, the trends that actually the pandemic has put to a massive halt around the way people, you know, the dining experiences and the salad bars and, and what have you. I think what ultimately what we're about is driving efficiencies, right? So what I would hope as a result of hybrid technology embedded in the, in, in the sector, what, not what I would hope, what I would know is you, it'd be a very, very rare occurrence that you would walk down the aisle with your shopping trolley or you would shop online and um, and you would find that the product that you wanted was out of stock. That's the first thing that you'll find yourself. Second of all, you might start to realise that the that the products that they offer, instead of being standardised, start to become a little bit more nuanced and you start to see things that you're really interested in that you might not have seen before. And I think that's a really interesting construct when you think about perhaps there's a trend for smaller assortments. You know, maybe we don't need 300 cereals um, in the cereal aisle when we go and shop for cereals. But then if we're going to go from 300 to 100 or even 20, how do we pick the right ones for that location? And as the consumer, you want to know that when you go to your local store or your favourite store, that they've got the products that most that you're most attracted to. So you'll, they'll be less out of stock. There'll be more products that they really want. And there'll also be products that they're really, you know, that perhaps they haven't seen before that they want to try. And so I think, the, you know, what you, there'll be less of that disappointment when, when they miss out on something that they were hoping to get. And that'll also translate into you know, that, that five-year horizon that perhaps we're talking about here. That'll also be very seamless as the, as the retailers start to, um, well, they're not already, they've already started, really streamline their offering across the multi-channel, you know, whether it's pure brick and mortar, you know, online click and collect, online, all of those things are very connected. Um, and it's really about driving the right choice for the consumer and the right experience and the right offerings and the most efficient solutions. But I think in the world that we operate, what happens is the stores get a little smaller. Um, there's, contrary to popular belief, actually, there's, there's, there's actually been, up until COVID at least, the number of stores were increasing, but the size of them were getting smaller. Um, there was more space allocated to experience. You know, you're sitting down and having a, sitting and having a coffee with your friend at the, at the local store, maybe sitting and having a meal, some experience with brand activation. So the space for the product range actually becomes um, quite, quite a bit at a premium. And so when we think about what we do, you know, we call it hyperlocal retailing, which is very targeted, very specific to that fingerprint that we talked about. You end up with a great shopping experience because at the end of the day, the consumers are surrounded by the products they want. They're available. Um, and then that is, that is then combined with all of the innovations that the retailers are bringing to enhance the consumer experience and ultimately result in shopping being, a, being, being, um, the experience that we all love and enjoy. I think, you know, what the pandemic will do 
I think will drive an acceleration uh, of the adoption of these technologies so we can be far more responsive and far more dynamic in the way we, we respond to real-time challenges. I think that the sector has been a bit slow to adopt these technologies and therefore made it slow to respond to the challenges that we've talked about. Well, Jason Hyvery, wealth of knowledge. Thanks so much for joining us today on Lost in the Supermarket. And if you want to know more, just check it out at hyvery.com. Thanks, Phil. Really appreciate the chat.